Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, Habits. In this series, we are focusing on habits that we can implement into our routine that bring focus and health into our spiritual, emotional, and physical lives. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Well, man, it was chilly this morning driving into church, and that means one thing. It means it is finally fall. It feels like fall. I think sometimes in New England, we say it's a season, but it feels like another season. So thank God it's fall. I even got my my fall attire on for you today. I have my flannel shirt. So we are ready. But I love the season of fall, you know, because the season of fall ushers in fall foods. And so, you know, pumpkin spice, everything is everywhere. Pumpkin spice lattes and apple pies and pumpkin pies and apple fritters. So what better time to talk about the habit of fasting? So this morning we're talking about the habit of fasting, but all joking aside, what a great couple weeks it has been here at church as we've dove in to this habit series. And if, if you're joining us for the first time today, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Just a little recap. Basically, we're focusing on the habits that we find in Scripture, the spiritual disciplines that we find in Scripture that are intentional choices we can make in our daily lives to, to get rid of the busyness and to focus our attention on who God is and grow in our faith. And so we're in week five of this series. Um, the first week is an intro, and we've gone through uh, three important and essential habits in, in the growth and the life of a believer. You know, Pastor Clark has been, you know, speaking on for, for week one, for instance, you know, community, the habit of community, intentionally living life with one another. You know, then there, there was a habit two weeks ago of prayer, intentionally spending time daily talking to our Heavenly Father. And then last week was the habit of Bible study. And it's been so cool to hear, even in life groups, how you guys have dug into, as a church body, the habit of Bible study. You know, there's the sticky note. I don't know if you guys, if you have the habits book, there's this little sticky note challenge in it. And by the way, side note, if you don't have a habits book, they're out in in the cafe. We'd love for you to grab one. Even if you don't have one of those, grab a sticky note. The challenges are fun. It's just a little reminder. But last week, the sticky note challenge was, was Bible before phone, or Bible before phone. That in the morning when you wake up, instead of grabbing your phone off your nightstand and and jumping on and turning off your alarm that suddenly turns into, you know, going on Facebook or going on Instagram or checking your email or responding to your texts, it's putting that aside, stopping your alarm, and intentionally, maybe not right when you wake up, but before you start getting involved in the craziness of busyness of information that the phones can sometimes bring, you get into Scripture. And you let Scripture set the tone for your day, not that text message you received late at night or that email that you got for work. And so it's been so cool to hear each week testimony of how God has been working on Sunday mornings and also in our life groups. And again, a plug for life groups, even though we're a couple weeks in, if you're not involved in a life group, it's never too late to join. There are life groups on every night of the week, all over locationally, and there's a life group for you. And so if you go to valleybrook.cc, that's our website, you can find all the information. We also have information out in the lobby, but we'd love for you to join up and get the most of what the series has for you. I think this season we have a record amount of 130 people at Valleybrook regularly involved in life groups, which is an amen. It's a yay God, and we'd love for you to make it 131. So go to the website and check it out. But I truly feel church 
as we were praying about this series, I truly feel, I, I just feel it in my spirit that we won't just be seeing the fruits of these habits, of these intentional decisions in the actual weeks that we put them into place, but actually we'll see the fruits in weeks and months and years to come. That as, as our church intentionally gets into God's word, as we intentionally lead into him in prayer, as we intentionally make community a priority, it will grow our body, it will grow us personally, and it will grow our area and grow the world. And so I'm excited this morning, I'm especially excited to teach about fasting, because I believe this morning the habit of fasting is one of the more underutilized and misunderstood spiritual disciplines in the Christian faith. Let me say that again. I believe that the habit of fasting is one of the most, if not the most, underutilized and misunderstood spiritual disciplines in the Christian faith. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about when I you know, talk about fasting, Christian fasting, simply put, it's this. Fasting is defined as abstaining from all or some kinds of food, drink, or even in this day, just you know, abstaining from something as a re religious observance. So in the simplest form, it's this. Fasting is choosing to deny oneself something. Fasting is simply choosing to, de to, not, to deny oneself something. You know, fasting has become pretty relevant in today's society, you know, with, with health. You know, my wife and I, you know, in our diet and, and what we're doing to try to stay healthy and take care of our bodies, we began this thing called intermittent fasting, which is kind of this big trend and it's gotten a lot of traction where basically you eat for six hour periods of time and for the rest of the day, you know, you fast and your body processes fat and differently and they're still kind of figuring out, but it's worked for Lisa and I. But so, so the, the how of fasting, the how to is pretty common. It's pretty widely known. Even with the Christian how-to, you know, we kind of know how to fast. You give something up. But where it gets a little foggy is when, when it comes especially to the Christian faith and fasting in, in the Christian faith is this. What is God's intended motivation and result of Christian fasting? See, again, a lot of us know how-to. We know how to give something up. But where it gets foggy is, you know, why is God intending us to fast in the first place? What does God's word say the purpose of fasting is in the life of the believer? And what does God say the outcome of fasting should be? I remember the, the, uh, the first um, experience that I had with, with fasting in, in the faith was in seventh grade. Um, seventh or eighth grade, you know, I was in middle school. I was in youth group here at Valley Brook, actually. And, you know, we did this thing called the 30-hour famine. Um, you know, some of you remember if you were around back in the day, churches still do that. Um, but this, this was like the worst youth event I've ever attended in my life. And let me tell you why. Because youth events, like the key to a good youth event, Pastor David, our youth pastor was here last service, but the key to good youth events is free food. Like I knew I was a student pastor, you know, before I moved into the role that I'm in now. And I knew if I had free pizza or free Chick-fil-A or free whatever, students would come. You know, middle school and high school, especially guys, like they were into the free food. This event was the worst because it was the opposite of that. It was intentionally not eating and depriving ourselves of food. And it was actually, a, a, a joking aside, it was a cool event where basically the whole heart of this event was that students, you know, middle school and high school students all around the country would join together and they would raise money to, to basically then not eat. And so they would experience what not having food would be like, what famine would be like. And so, you know, I went around to friends and family. I'm like, hey, you know, would you pledge like 25 bucks? If, you know, I'm not going to eat for 30 hours. Would you pledge that money? We're raising money. I think the, all the money went to, uh, you know, an organization that was fighting world hunger. And so I raised all this money. And so I was stoked about it. Like I was, I was fired up. I mean, again, it wasn't like my ideal event, but I was excited because it was helping people. And it was the first time I'd ever done something like this. 
And so I remember we started, you know, the night before. So the event was on Friday into Saturday, but they said, hey, so you, the fast starts on Thursday night. So the last meal that you eat is dinner on Thursday night. So I had a big meal on Thursday night. I'm ready to go. Friday morning comes. I'm pumped up. I'm in school. Like, I'm feeling good about it. You know, I'm talking to people about it. I'm ready to go. You know, we get to the event. And like, in the beginning, it was a lot of fun. Like, I was really excited. But it's amazing how, as the night went on, as later and later it got, how these excited, joyous, happy teenage kids became monsters. I mean, if you've seen a teenager without food for an extended period of time, teenagers are like monsters in a lot of ways anyway, but like this was like extra monster. This was like, you know, little demons running around just angry and angsty. Teenage angst was magnified. I remember there was one part in this, part in this night, it was this torture where basically we were going around and we had this scavenger hunt around town. And so we were in cars with leaders and I, I was in Karen Dumez's car actually, I remember. And so we're driving around and we're taking pictures of things around town to win this scavenger hunt. And one of the things was you need to go into McDonald's. This is when Granby had a McDonald's, rest in peace. But you were going into McDonald's and you would take a picture with the employee, which was torturous for a teenage boy who hadn't eaten for like a hundred hours, it felt like. And we had to go in and smell the glory that was McDonald's and we had to take pictures with the employees. But I remember as the night went on, I mean, it just, it got like, there was drama, it got intense. But I remember one specific moment, like we're getting ready for lights out. It was late, like midnight, one in the morning. And one of the guys in our youth group in the bottom of his bag, because we weren't allowed to bring any food. They like checked our bags. They were intense about it. In the bottom of the bag, he found a pack, of, no joke, of big red gum. And you would have thought like this was like the manna from heaven. So like all of us guys were like, it's like, it was like a little drug deal we had going. We're secretly like sneaking little pieces of big red gum to like fulfill this hunger deep down that we had. You know, but, but, you know, the next morning, you know, we all wake up. We did some service projects. And that actually was a really fun, you know, educational event. And then we broke the fast. Never did I think that chicken soup would taste so good, but that is what we ended the day with. And it was just a, it was my first experience with, with going without. Now, I didn't really fast for the reasons that we see in Scripture, but it was like my first experience with going without and experiencing, honestly, true, like, deep hunger, See, the habit of Christian fasting is very countercultural in the world that we live in. Very countercultural in the world, especially in our Western culture that we live in. See, in the culture that we live in, especially here in America, we're always trying to get more. We're always trying to defeat the sense of lack in the suffering that comes with it. And so fasting, though, is, is different. Fasting is intentional, sorry, it's an intentional decision to sacrifice. It's intentionally putting our bodies and our hearts in a place of depravity and struggle to seek after the more of God. Instead of fighting against the lack, instead of fighting against this discomfort, instead of fighting against that tension and that hunger in that first, Christian fasting is intentionally stepping into that world to experience the more of God and all that God has for us. See, this morning we're going to look at how the discipline of fasting can put a believer, you and I, in a perfect position to pursue an inner hunger, an inner longing, and a reliance on God like never before. This in turn produces an outward desire to see him lifted up in our families, our cities, our nation, our workplace, and in this world. It brings a desire in our hearts to see his kingdom come. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing 
Father, we thank you for all that you've taught us through your word and these different disciplines. And Lord, I pray that as we look into this difficult concept of fasting and this, this misunderstood concept of fasting, that you would challenge our hearts. That you would help us understand through your scripture what this looks like in each one of our situations, in each one of our lives, and that we would be spurred on to action. And ultimately, that we would love you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the, the theologian and pastor, John Piper, summed up the heart and the motivation of Christian fasting uh, with one sentence. And this is kind of going to be the direction that we're headed this morning. And the sentence is this, the birthplace of Christian fasting is a homesickness for God. The birthplace, the genesis, the beginning, the foundation of Christian fasting is a homesickness for God. So in other words, fasting is intentionally posturing our body and our mind to long for the not yet kingdom of God. So there are many misconceptions about what fasting is and the role it plays in the life of a modern believer. So to understand the genesis and the heart of what fasting is, we're going to look at the story in the gospel, a story in the Gospel of Matthew where we see Jesus, like he did time and time again, challenge the customs and the norms of the culture of his time and begin to establish a new way. He took the concept of fasting and how the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, his people, God's people, understood it, and he changed it and put it in a new light. And so the story begins in Matthew 9. And at this point in Matthew's gospel, you know, Jesus had been teaching and performing signs and wonders and traveling with his disciples and actively ministering. He was teaching about, you know, uh, devotion and love in this new life and new way. But as he had been doing so, we see as we look, you know, in the, in the verses and chapters before that there had been a growing opposition to his teachings from the religious elite. See, he was looking at things a little differently. He was phrasing things a little differently, and he was coming against and challenging a lot of the legalistic culture of the time. And so the religious leaders, the ones that had control, the elite did not like this. You know, we see right before the scripture that we're going to be looking at in Matthew 9, right before that we see Jesus, he miraculously heals a leper. He, or sorry, miraculously heals a paralytic man. And instead of celebrating this, you know, we see the scribes, they call him a blasphemer. And then right after that, you know, we see Jesus eating with Matthew the tax collector, a story that many of us are very familiar with. This was a sinner, a despised man, and Jesus sits down and shares a meal with him and talks about redemption and actually calls him. And the Pharisees, instead of seeing the good, challenged and publicly ridiculed him for being in such close proximity and sitting down with such a public sinner, such a public outcast. See, we are seeing more and more that as Jesus is teaching He's actively challenging the old way of doing things to foreshadow and teach about the new way that was being established and would be completed through his death on the cross. So this morning, we're going to look at how he did this with the Christian practice of fasting. So let's pick up the story here in Matthew 9, 14. It'll be on the screen. It says this, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. See, in this section, we see Jesus and his disciples once again come under fire you know, by religious teachers and the religious elite. And in this case, they're coming under fire by John the Baptist and his disciples. 
So John the Baptist is, is a big leader, and he's foretelling the, come, or foretelling the coming Messiah, and he has a lot of influence in his disciples too as well. And so we see this clash. And so to understand the question, or honestly more appropriately, the challenge that they made, the judgment that they made towards Jesus and his disciples, we first need to understand the cultural history of fasting in the time. So this is where I nerd out a little bit, because I think when we look at these scriptures, you know, it's cool to take them at face value, but there's so much depth in seeing the, the fullness of what God is trying to teach through the cultural context. And so at this time, in the time that, you know, Jesus is walking and teaching, you know, similar today, fasting involved refraining, specifically though, refraining from, you know, food and many times beverage as well for an extended period of time. The interesting part though is that if you look at the Old Testament law, there was only one time, one day out of the year, that the Jewish people were required under law to fast. Now we all know there's 613 laws. I mean, there was a lot of laws in the time. But for fasting, they were only required to fast one day under law. And it was a day called the Day of Atonement. A lot of you know, us know it you know, more well today as, as Yom Kippur and the Jewish holiday. But it was a day of atonement, and it was a day to focus on repentance and sorrow. But the interesting thing is that if there wasn't enough rules as it was, the religious leaders took this one practice, this one law on this one day, and they kind of ran with it. They kind of made it more than it was, more than God intended to, to make themselves look more holy, to, to control a little bit more. At this time, they began to build on this one law in more of a legalistic way. See, while there was only one day required in the law, we can see that the religious leaders of this time encouraged very strongly that, that people would fast on Mondays and Thursdays as well, as, as well as many important occasions. See, this might seem like disciplined and, reverence at first, and reverent at first glance, and it might have been in certain cases. Some of this might have, the heart might have been pure, but if we look at how they fasted, the key to their hearts is revealed. See, the religious leaders were known. They were known to fast publicly. When they fasted, they made it known. They wanted other people to know, this is what I am doing for the glory of God. I am so righteous. I am so good. I am abstaining. I am suffering for God. They wanted people to see their sacrifice. And, and not instead of, instead of glorifying the Lord, they wanted people to see them and think great of them. They wanted people to know how much they fasted so they could prove themselves as the elite, that they could prove themselves worthy to show that they were better. So knowing this, it can be assumed that the disciples of John that are speaking to Jesus, they fasted like this. So let's get back into Matthew 9, 14, and let's pick this apart a little bit. So these followers say, the followers of John, the religious elite, come to Jesus, they challenge him, and they say, why do we and the Pharisees fast? So, so why do we do this? But Jesus, you and your disciples do not fast. We see a challenge in their tone. See, in essence, what they're saying is, if you're so spiritual, Jesus, if you're, so, if you're what you say you are, why don't you follow and uphold all the religious standards like we do? So Jesus, in the way that he does, you know, replies with a very specific story, a very specific analogy in verse 15. He says this, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? See, here again, context is key because the weddings in this time looked very different than weddings do today. See, weddings today, you know, it's great and it's festive, but it's, it's a one-day thing usually. 
So, you know, one day thing you have, you know, the great, you know, ceremony and the vows and all this, all the, you know, all the cool pomp and circumstance that happens. And then you have the reception afterwards and you have the party. But usually that lasts just one day. You have the ceremony in the afternoon or morning. You have the party. People stay out late and then it's over. And then the couple usually goes on a honeymoon and, and all is said and done. But see, weddings in this time are way different. These were celebrations. I mean, these people in this day knew how to party. Wedding festivities would last in the minimum a week long. There were all these celebrations and joyous occasions that would happen in this wedding feast. I mean, one of the things that they were marked by was the lavish food and festive occasions that would happen on, during this week. It was basically a week-long celebration filled with the best food and the best drink. See, weddings were joyful, similar to they are today, but weddings were joyful occasions. They were parties. They were centered around eating with one another and drinking with one another. So a wedding would not be an appropriate place to fast. It would probably kill the mood a little bit, honestly. So Jesus is looking at this and he's saying, well, I, and he's, he's calling himself the bridegroom here. You know, as we see you know, in scripture all throughout, you know, the church is the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom. We see that, that comparison. So he says, well, I, the bridegroom, and here physically in the flesh on earth, it's a time for joy and celebration, certainly not fasting. So then he continues in the next verse by saying this, then the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. So again, Jesus first says they don't fast because he, the bridegroom, is with them. It's a time for joy. It's a time for celebration. But then he foretells of a major situational change for the disciples. See, he's beginning to foretell about what would happen to him in the days to come. This is one of the first glimpses that we get of Jesus talking and foretelling about his death upon the cross. See, he's starting to allude that he would be taken away, that he would be beaten, mocked, and crucified on the cross for the sins of this world, later raising from the dead and ascending to the Father. See, the joy and celebration when the bridegroom was there would turn into mourning and sorrow as the disciples would witness this shift when the bridegroom left. This is when they would fast. Now, this is key, church, to understand this. They would fast until he returns again an expectation and longing. That the followers of Jesus, that starting with the disciples and coming right up to this day in modern Christian church, that we would fast with expectation and longing until he returns again. See, the key point of what we are seeing here in Jesus' teachings is this. In him and through him, something new is happening. Motivations are shifting. Here we see Jesus teaching something that is so foundational to the heart of the discipline of fasting. It's the concept of longing for the not yet of the kingdom. It's the concept of longing for the not yet of the kingdom. So yes, we believe that sin was defeated on the cross. We believe that as believers, you know, we are redeemed by the blood of the lamb, that Jesus rose from the grave triumphantly. But the reality is, church, if we look around us, we still live in a fallen world. And so many of us are longing for his return, 
so that he can redeem all things back to himself. I mean, you could just watch the news today, and as a believer, as a follower of Christ, it is heartbreaking to see all the tragedy that is happening in our country and around the world. And as a believer, one of the first responses should be for us to long for Christ to return to restore all things back to himself. See here, Jesus is taking a spiritual practice that was common in the Jewish culture, that was about following the rules, that was about checking off the box, And he is changing the heart from a legalistic, rule-following motivation to a heart cry, to a relational motivation. This longing of the bridegroom returning here is speaking of Jesus' second coming, of his return to restore all things to himself. There's a great quote in the book Hunger for God by John Piper. It's a book that just really dives into the depths of, of Christian fasting. It says this, Fasting is a physical exclamation point at the end of the sentences, I need you, I want you, I long for you. You are my treasure, I want more of you. The heart of fasting is longing. We are putting our stomach where our heart is to give added intensity and expressiveness to our ache for Jesus. We fast to express our longing, our ache for all the implications of Jesus' power in the present moment that isn't completely realized. We want to see people healed. We want to see people saved. We want to see marriages redeemed. We ache and we long for this to happen. Therefore, we ask Jesus to come by putting this exclamation point of longing at the end of our desires. This new way of fasting Jesus is introducing in Matthew wasn't a requirement. It wasn't a rule. But for God's people, for you and I, for believers of Jesus Christ, it is a response that as we fast, as we dive into the discipline, the habit of spiritual fasting, then we will long for more of him, that we will long for his return. See, as they fasted in this way, they would also long to see the kingdom of heaven established here on earth in this time. So the practical question then for Christ followers today is this. How does fasting create a longing and a deeper hunger for God? So we get it. We give up stuff. You know, we do that. Like we don't eat or we don't go on technology or we don't, you know, eat sugar or whatever it is, whatever fasting may be for you or that you've done in the past. But how does that get us to the point where we have a deeper longing and a hunger for Christ? How do we get from the head to the heart here? The first way is this. Fasting creates an inner longing. Richard Foster in his book called The Celebration of Discipline, which on a side note is one of the best books I think written. It's like the foundational book on on spiritual disciplines. But he says this, Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of a superior satisfaction in God, it is also a chosen weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away. See, Christian fasting creates an inner longing by intentional sacrifice. Christian fasting creates an inner longing by an intentional sacrifice. The key to understanding fasting and how fasting postures our heart for change is this. Fasting isn't giving up things that are evil, but instead it's forfeiting what is good. See, that's the key. Fasting is not giving up the things that are evil, the the sins of our life. That's important to do as we are becoming more like Christ day by day. We're trying to push aside the sin in our life, but that's not what fasting is. The spiritual discipline of fasting isn't giving up those things, but instead it's intentionally and willingly forfeiting what is good. 
Because for a believer, every day, church, and some of us sense this, you know, in, in big ways, every day we are battling an inner war with our appetites that compete with our hunger for God. See, when we give up these gifts, when we give up these good things, we're doing it in order to try to truly rely on him. See, we see this, see, this theme so clearly you know, played out in one of Jesus' parables in Luke 14. I'm going to read it to you. It says this. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, telling a parable, A certain man was prepping a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come home. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became very angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. See, one of the key points in this parable Jesus was making was this. Instead of eating at the feast of the kingdom of God, instead of enjoying the free gift of grace that it's alluding to, instead of coming to the table of the king, those invited guests were letting other good things get in the way and distract them. One of them just bought a field. One just bought an oxen. One just got married. Those aren't inherently bad things, but what they were doing is it was letting those things, the gifts, the provisions of God, get in the way of them coming to the table. See, for all the horrible things that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love here, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. I'm going to say that again. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. See, these are all gifts from God. These are all blessings. But in this parable, their dependence upon these blessings made their hearts not long to be at the table with the king, missing out on that gift. They were relying on his gifts to them, not on him alone. John Piper says it like this in Hunger for God. He says, fasting reveals the measure of food's mastery over us or television or computers or whatever we submit to again and again to conceal the weakness of our hunger for God. See, when we turn from these things, church, by intentionally stripping them away when we fast, we choose, we make an intentional choice to not let them have control over us. See, as time goes by, as we choose to not let these things have control over us, our dependence is less on them, and our hearts and minds begin to shift and turn to dependence on the Lord. So in our lives are, are many of these types of things, and you could add to this list, but, you know, food, drink, reading, traveling, hobbies, social media, work, technology, shopping, exercising, collecting. These are not all inherently evil things. In fact, many of them are gifts from God. I consider my job a gift from God, my marriage a gift from God, my kids a gift from God. But all of those things 
can easily, and many times are, become deadly substitutes for God. All of those things, all of those gifts in my life, in your life, can so easily become deadly substitutes for God because we begin to rely on them instead of fully relying on God. See, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What we hunger for the most, we worship. See, fasting creates an inner longing by also revealing latent idolatry and sin. See, many times we don't know what we are truly relying on until it's stripped away. I don't know how many of you have ever left your, your phone at home in the morning as you've gone to work, but it's one of the most crippling, in my life, crippling situations I've ever had. You know, like I, you know, I, it was a couple weeks ago, I was headed to work and I just forgot my phone. I don't know how it happened. And I got to work and I instantly felt naked. Like I just, like I, because so much of my life is, I literally, church, I felt my phone vibrating in my pocket when it wasn't even there. That's a thing. They call it like the ghost vibration. But I was like reaching for my phone to answer a text. I'm like, oh, it's not here. Like I felt worthless. Like what am I going to do? And I remember there was a specific moment where I was at the bank and I was waiting to make, you know, a transaction. I was waiting to make a deposit. I'm, I'm a couple people back in line and I'm sitting there normally. I just do this as I wait. But I was like dumbfounded. I'm like, what do I do with my time now? Like, how do I, pro like, like, I literally like didn't know what to do. And it was, it was crazy how in that moment I realized how dependent I was on this device. But this cool shift happened in my heart, and this is the truth. As I was waiting that line, I'm like, all right, what do I do? Like, I'm, I'm getting bored. I'm getting ADD, and I'm, like, getting, like, like really, you know, anxious. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to pray for the people in line. And now, this wasn't an intentional fast. This was a forced fast because I forgot my phone. But it's amazing how this fast shifted a little bit my view of my priorities. It's so interesting that as the day went on, just that, that one little day, I found myself talking with the Lord more. That in the time that I would busy my life up with this, I found myself praying to him more. I found my, my car rides not, you know, with podcasts and music, and, but I found myself sitting in the quiet, talking to God and listening. See, this forced fast revealed to me my reliance on this device. And honestly, the idolatry I created that I would turn to it instead of turning to God. So how many of us have these things? You know, these don't seem, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but how many of us have them? The areas of our life that we are dependent on instead of a longing for God to be our sustainer. Maybe it's finances or hobby or friends or spouse or, or work. But when we intentionally fast, when we intentionally strip these things away, when we intentionally take a break from these things, it really reveals the idolatry in our lives. The writer of Psalm 63 shows us and gives us a glimpse at what a heart fully dependent on God looks like. He says this, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Man, my heart cry is I want to have a heart fully dependent on God like that. 
And I know that if we sat down and we talked, and so many of us as we're pursuing the more of God, you would truly have that desire too. But in reality, if we were truly honest with ourselves, we would find that we don't find our satisfaction in the Lord. We don't find our comfort in the Lord. We don't find our wisdom in the Lord or in his word, but instead in the blessings and gifts from the Lord and in the things of this world. See, we make idols by relying on them and putting them before the Lord. But when we expose that by stripping them away, we begin to shift in our hearts. We begin to desire these things less, and we begin to desire the Lord in place of these things. See, fasting brings this sin to the surface. It's amazing when you fast, especially with food, how it can bring other sin to the surface. I mean, I, I know when I fast, something happens around probably hour 12. It's called hanger. Many of us have heard this term. It's hungry anger. There's also tanger, which is tired anger. There's a lot of them. But hungry anger. It's amazing how when I deprive myself of, of food, how other sins that were like kind of buried deep down kind of come to the surface. My lack of patience, my frustration, how short I am with my wife, my judgment on other people people. See, fasting does not cause these things, but instead it brings them to the surface and it triggers them. And so when we fast in a sacrificial way, it exposes this sin. It exposes the things in our lives that we're making idols that we're turning to instead of the Lord. And the more that we can dig deep and remove this hidden sin, the more that we can look more like God and desire more of his presence. See, the key to inner longing and hunger for the Lord is to remove the things of this world that we are relying on and to deal with this sin. Because once we do so, we set ourselves up to rely on him and him alone. We humble ourselves. We experience our own depravity and we seek the Lord to be our provider, our healer, our guide, and our sustainer. The more of us we remove, the more of him we want. C.S. Lewis worded it best when he said, our best havings are wantings. Our best havings are wantings. See, church, the more deeply you walk with Christ, the hungrier you get for Christ. The more homesick you get for heaven, the more you want all the fullness of God, the more you want to be done with sin, the more you want the bridegroom to come, the more you want the church to be revived and purified with the beauty of Jesus, the more you want a great awakening to God's reality in the cities, the more you want to see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ penetrate the darkness of all the unreached peoples of the world, the more you want to see false worldviews yield to the force of truth, the more you want to see pain relieved and tears wiped away and death destroyed, the more you long for every wrong to be made right and the justice and grace of God to fill the earth like waters cover the sea. See, the more we fast, the more our perspective is shifts. And where we're going to end this morning is this. Fasting creates an outer longing. See, the more we long for him, the closer we are to his heart. The closer we are to his heart, the more open we are to hear from him. The more his desires become our desires, the more our heart breaks for what his heart breaks for. See, the more we long for him, the more he can speak to us, giving direction and wisdom. The more we strip ourselves away, the more like him we become. This is why fasting is so commonly paired all throughout scripture and just practically with prayer and seeking. Because when we fast, we put ourselves in a prime position to hear his voice and to be used by him. The more we hear his voice, the more we long to see his kingdom established here on earth. 
The more we long for God, the more we desire to see the poor taken care of, the widows loved, the orphans embraced. The more we long for God, the more that we desire to see marriages restored and relationships healed. The more we long for God, the more we desire to see injustice made right. And most importantly, the more we long for God, the more we desire to see this world changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when we long for God, these desires become our, his desires become our desires, and the result is upward action. So practically, how do we do that? Because there's a heart behind that. That's the why. That's the intended motivation. That's the hope of, of result. But how do we do that? And we're going to be unpacking this in our life groups. And so, again, if you're not involved in a life group, grab a book so you can unpack it in your own time. But really quickly this morning, I want to just give you the key, the one question that the Lord put on my heart that I think is the key to this type of, of fasting that Jesus is talking about. See, when Jesus changed the heart of fasting, he took the legalistic motivation away, and he made it about relationship and longing. So do we have to fast food or drink? Do we have to fast? How long do we fast? What does this look like? Well, the one question I would challenge you to ask yourself, a simple question that you can take away this morning is ask yourself this first in determining what to fast, what to intentionally give up. Ask yourself the question, what do I rely on? What do I rely on? What consumes my time, my energy? You know, what would truly be a sacrifice to give up? What would sting a little bit? What would make me uncomfortable? What do I rely on? So when you identify that, and as your body or your life permits, begin to take extended periods of time and strip them away. Maybe it's your phone. Maybe you're like me and you rely way too much on this. And so maybe when you get home from work, you put it away, you know, until the next morning. But what I would say is in determining that time, again, Jesus doesn't give us, hey, a real fast, you know, if you're a real Christian, you fast for 24 hours. He doesn't give us any time. I would say, what, answer that question, what do I rely on? And then sacrifice it long enough to where it hurts a little bit. Because the whole point is when we hunger, when we defeat those hungers, when we're put in that tension, when we're put and we strip those desires away, we begin to lean on God. The heart of fasting isn't legalistic, but it's about a relationship. It's about heart change. So what that looked like for you this week? Maybe it is fasting from food. That is the, the, the main way that we see fasting in Scripture. That's not a reality for some of us with life and health and work. And I, I get that. You know, but maybe it's technology or social media or a hobby or focus. But remember, as you fast this week, that in your discomfort, you will learn to look to God. In the place of sacrifice, of struggle, it helps to cut out the noise, all the other voices of influence, and intentionally focus on the source of true life. But here's the cool part. Church, when you fast this week, expect God to speak. Expect God to speak and God to move because what you're doing is you're positioning yourself in a place of humility and in a place of surrender and in a place of letting him have authority. When we become less, we give him a place to be lifted up. As we transition to communion this morning, I want to end with this, this, um, this quote from John Piper to close. It says this, If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God and the hunger for God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There's an appetite for God and it can be awakened. 
I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry and say with some simple fast, this much, O oh God, I want you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are actively pursuing us. And Father, we thank you for this challenging word this morning for myself and every person in this room. That as we take a step back and we look at what we're truly relying on, Father, that we would take intentional steps and make intentional decisions to strip those things away so we can truly rely on you. Father, birth a longing in each one of our hearts for the kingdom yet to come. But God, help us not to be complacent and wait for your second coming when Jesus comes again and restores all things. But Father, help that longing move to outward action that we would long to see your kingdom here and now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.